Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Live for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Um, we, uh, we have a uh, show focused on the prostate today. So we're gonna be talking about prostate cancer genomics. Uh, we are joined by uh, Dr. Todd Cohen. Also have Rob Fitch on the line. Thank you, uh, Rob. Um, and uh, I'm just gonna walk through a little housekeeping as always. Uh, one, uh, before I forget, we uh, are recording these now just so people can access uh, at least the audio content. Um, uh, you know, if you want to, uh, I see Shelly on. Thank you, Shelly, uh, for running the chat. So if you want to ask questions, just uh, feel free to unmute yourself. You can ask anything. If this is your first time to Mirror Oncology Live, it's a totally open format. So you can ask whatever you want. Uh, we do try to do them theme-based. So Let it go, and we'll see if we can get an answer for you. Um, and um, oh, sorry, hopefully I'm not freezing. I'm getting something that says internet is unstable. <laughs> um, so today, yeah, prostate cancer genetics. Uh, we're going to talk uh, male breast cancer uh, Tuesday, October nineteenth. So that will be uh, a good, um, a good one as well. Um, not to, they're all good. They're all good. <laughs> and then uh, we'll be talking about uh, polygenic risk score translation into clinical care uh, at the end of October. Uh, we'll have uh, Holly Peterson for that one. Um, and um, I'm trying the male breast cancer uh, one on October 19th. I believe we're going to have um, two patients. And then Shelly was also going to show some uh, data. So that should be you know, a pretty interactive session as well. Um, and then as I brought up, yes, we are uh, uh, keeping these, uh, at least the audio, and you can now go to, um, you know, there's a link here, but you can really get this anywhere. I mean, it's on Apple, whatever, um, you know, the podcast and uh, anything that says Myriad Live in front of it is um, uh, one of these. And anything that doesn't is just kind of a, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one with an uh, expert in the field. Uh, so we just posted this emerging role of genetic counselors in tumor testing. Uh, I didn't even realize I was posted, so that's pretty fast. So that one's with uh, Leah uh, Center uh, at Ohio State. Uh, so that's a good one. So that must have just got posted. All right. And so thanks, Shelly, for getting that set, set up. It's already posted. <laughs> how fast that happens. <laughs> um, so today... Um, we are joined uh, by Dr. Todd Cohen, and then uh, I already introduced uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Rob Finch. Uh, Dr. Cohen looks uh, very regal uh, in his lighting. <laughs> I think I'm getting the sun just blaring in from the window. Hard to be in your presence. <laughs> yeah, it's my aura. <laughs> yeah, so thank you. Uh, if you want to give everyone a little debrief, maybe on uh, who you are and what what you do, and um, you know what you, what you do at Myriad, that'd be fantastic. And you know, Rob, we yeah, can do well, the same in a second. Yeah, too. if you would do that, because I'd really like to know, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you. 
So do you want to tell everyone your uh, your clinical sure. experience? Yep. Okay. Welcome, everybody, uh, and thanks for having me, TJ. Um, I'm Todd Cohen, and I am the uh, medical director of urology for Myriad Genetics. And uh, prior to this, in my previous life, um, I was a practicing urologist um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, for about 25 years. Uh, I spent some time in academics, and uh, but ran a very large practice in the Charlotte metropolitan area. We had about uh, 40 urologists. Um, so uh, you know, right now I've been out of that and with Myriad for about three years. And it took three years for my Prozac from running 40 doctors, um, you know, got out of my system. So, you know, things have settled down, you know, over the last 36 months and uh, be happy to talk about the, the burgeoning field of uh, genetics and genomics in, um, in respect to prostate cancer, because it's, it's not new news. Um, but I think that it's the, the knowledge that we're gaining is, is exponential every day. Um, it's kind of mm -hmm. like the technology thing where it's just changing every minute. Um, so there's, there's a lot to catch up on. And really just last week, the new guidelines from NCCN uh, came out regarding uh, prostate cancer. So we can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, when did you turn into an angel? Um, uh, if you ask me, it was probably the day before I got married. If you ask my wife, it still hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> in other words, Angel's never been one that's used to describe me in the past, but uh, I'll yeah. take it. <laughs> well, Rob, uh, do you want to unmute yourself and uh, tell the audience who you are? Thank you also for joining sure. Sure, of course. Um, I'm Rob Finch. I'm a certified genetic counselor with Myriad on uh, the urology business unit. Um, and I've been with Myriad for a little bit over 18 years. So I've been in uh, several of the different business units and dealing with several of the different organ sites, but uh, now I'm resting in the prostate cancer. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, okay, so um, you know, we were talking a little bit, you brought up, uh, Todd, about the, the guideline change. I don't know if that's a good place to start, probably good as any, because uh, I think it opens up a lot of conversation about, um, you know, uh, recent updates, you know, why are the updates in this regard? Because, you know, I consider some of them to be pretty major. Um, did you want to share some, like, yeah. uh, you know, some slides? I'm going to use the, 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 probably the most famous phrase in America right now is I'm going to share my screen and... Yes. See if what we can. Oops. Thank you. Okay, so I have to get you to stop sharing. Oh, okay. And yeah, I'll just, and no, I'll take. A, I'm taking oh, control. Go. So okay. Go. And so, so yes, yeah, so again, and anyone can just you know ask any question. But yeah, if you have uh, burning you know burning questions, just uh, send them to Shelly uh, if you don't want to unmute yourself and ask them. Okay. I don't know if you're seeing. You probably are. You not seeing my screen now? Uh, we are. Yes. Okay. You seeing the. The guidelines page up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're okay. On great. Slide uh, twenty six. I don't know if you want to yep. change it. You could change no, it. No, I want to actually. Other mode. It's up to you. I would like to. I would like to stay here. I'm going to keep it. You know, hopefully like this, just so I can toggle because it's going to go a little bit out of order yeah, from yeah. what I'm showing you. Mm -hmm. But um, this is the guidelines um, specifically. This came out last year, um, or actually, you know, I think it was last February, and it hasn't changed much until recently. But what's circled here is in the low risk group, and this is the treatment of low risk localized prostate cancer. And probably one of the biggest changes that came up, and I'll explain why I feel like this is one of the biggest changes, is it said that in the low risk group, 
that the preferred treatment is active surveillance. And, you know, most people will agree that the low-risk prostate cancers tend not to go on and metastasize or, or lead to death. But, I mean, in, in relatively low incidence of, of that occurring. The big change, though, really came this year when you look at the same category, um, you see that they removed in the low-risk group, and this is this year's that came out last week, they removed the word preferred. And there's a major reason for that. And this is really with the increasing evidence that certain genetic abnormalities and mutations are associated with higher-risk prostate cancer. And specifically, and now I'm going to jump in to show you why I did this kind of in this order, but this is a chart that came out in NCCN. And what they're, what they're suggesting is that when you're considering a patient for active surveillance, you have the tools that are able to better risk stratify these patients in, you know, using more up-to-date tools than just clinical and pathologic features. Um, that haven't really been changed since 1984. But like the breast cancer world, we're learning in prostate, there's a lot of different, you know, not subtle, but genetic changes that can really alter the risk of a patient developing bad disease and going on to metastases and death. And what the NCCN has recognized here is especially in the BRAC2 world, they added if you're going to risk further risk stratify, which they're kind of recommending here, is that germline testing, specifically with BRCA2, should be done to risk stratify. And these are all 2A recommendations, which are in that should category. If you're going to do this, this is really what they recommend you test with. And the reason why BRCA2 is, for those of you that are less familiar with, you know, prostate cancer genetics, is that several studies have shown that men that harbor the BRCA2 mutation specifically are at a much higher risk of METs, including a four times higher risk of developing METs compared to men without this mutation over the first five years after diagnosis. They also have a six times higher risk of dying from prostate cancer, again, other than, you know, over men that don't have carry the mutations. And finally, they, men that have a BRCA2 mutation tend to live on average seven years less than men that don't have the mutation. So all the with evidence- prostate pointing, cancer, though, With prostate cancer, though. Yes, yeah, with prostate cancer, yes. With prostate cancer, yes. So, the, you know, all the evidence that we're seeing is, is pointing to, it's probably not a good idea to put men that have a BRCA2 mutation and less is evidence, but still there's evidence for other mutations, uh, but specifically for BRCA2 to, to be put on active surveillance because these are really much potentially much higher risk uh, men. Hey, and, John, can I interrupt uh, for a second? Sure. I just got a question about active surveillance. So when we're thinking about surveillance and some of the other uh, organ type surveillance is really somebody who doesn't have cancer and they should be uh, surveilled to uh, identify cancer in an early stage. Can you um, talk a little bit about the difference between that versus active surveillance in a man with prostate cancer? Sure. Um, and, and thanks for the question. I, you know, I, unfortunately, I just assume that uh, you know people know that, so I, I apologize. But Men with uh, prostate cancer are, are very, it's a very varied group. There's low risk men, which tend to have a less chance of progression of disease, even if left untreated. 
and it goes all the way up into an intermediate risk, and there's different categories of that, as well as high-risk men. And these are broken down by category by looking primarily at their clinical and pathological features. And in prostate cancer, we usually use just a few. Um, they're the PSA test, uh, the prostate-specific antigen, which is you know, determined as a blood test on their diagnosis, what that level is. The second is what the grade of their tumor looks like under the microscope, and that's given the name Gleason grade. And Gleason was a pathologist that actually just described it as he drew these different grades on a napkin, um, and that's somewhere in some museum someplace, that napkin. And the last thing is the clinical stage or what the digital rectal exam feels like. And I, I kind of commented to the point where the, the most recent of those advances was you know, PSA back in 1984. So we're talking about technology that's 38 years old or older. And until more recently, that's all that we've been using to determine treatment for prostate cancer. So when men are considered to be low risk, so they have a low PSA, a more favorable grade or Gleason score, and a more favorable digital rectal exam or prostate exam, these men are tended to put on active surveillance, which is a, a I could call it, and I told my patients, this is a form of treatment. And this is a treatment where you watch the patient closely for you know, potential for progression of disease. And you try to intervene before they, of course, go on to metastasize. And most men won't metastasize. And so you can watch them indefinitely. And a lot of men will stay on this surveillance protocol, which requires checking PSAs and even re-biopsying them on occasion um, and making sure they don't have uh, my, um, you know, histologic progression as determined by what their pathology is. So we use this active surveillance to watch a lot of men. And you know, the thought is somewhere between 80 and 90% of men that are low risk, and I'm seeing that I'm glowing really pretty badly right now, um, but about 80 to 90% of these men will qualify for active surveillance or to be watched. Um, now, what helps us better these days to determine if these men are truly candidates and not hiding some type of aggressive cancer is looking at their genomic and their genetic profile. And BRCA2 is, as I just described, one of those. Uh, we also have uh, biomarker tests that can determine if, if these uh, cancers are secretly uh, more aggressive. And, and I liken that to the fact that if you, you're looking at it under the microscope, it can only tell you so much. And if you have, let's say, two cars, uh, two Ferraris that you're staring at, they look identical. You know, one, you know, they both look very fast. And one, if you look under the hood, though, or what's driving this Ferrari could be two squirrels on a treadmill, that Ferrari's not going to move. But a more aggressive one will have a 600 horsepower motor underneath. So although they look identical under the microscope and what we're seeing, they look the same, they don't act the same. And these genetic tests and genomic tests um, can help determine what's driving that Ferrari. Is it two squirrels or is it, a, is it a, an engine? And I apologize for the car uh, analogy, but it's, it's the best one I have. <laughs> Every other one I tried has failed miserably. So I like to keep this one. Yeah. So, and that, that looks, uh, those look at uh, RNA um, and not DNA. 
Correct. Um, yes. Which is, you know, I don't, I don't know if everyone knows that, but yeah, it's looking at, uh, you know, tra- you know, which transcripts are up or down and, you know, compared to some housekeeping genes to try to, you know, get a sense of how revved up, what kind of engine is in that Ferrari, we'll put it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, analogy. yeah. yeah. Those tissue markers are, are um, it's a form of a somatic test, but they're looking at expression of RNA. So not just the present, not a mutation being present, but, you know, are they? And, you know, the Polaris test in particular, which is the myriad test, um, will look at what's you know driving the cell cycle progression or how rapidly these cells are turning over, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very good gives you a very good sense of how aggressive the cancer is. And so how do you do these tests? Are these um, at what point do you do them in someone's journey? Yeah. Okay. We well these days we we do the the tissue based test at diagnosis. Um, you you take the biopsy specimen before you plan your your treatment. And you send it off. Uh, you send the test off for analysis. And the idea is to get all of the information back before you sit down with the patient and talk about potential treatment options. And in in many cases, the the Polaris test uh, or other biomarkers will give you an idea, you know, how aggressive the cancer is. So you, when you talk to the patients, you can give them an idea: Are they a good candidate potentially for active surveillance? Um, if they're not a good candidate for surveillance and you want to do more definitive therapy, and in prostate, the most common ones are either surgical removal of the prostate or radiation. It'll tell you, um, specifically the Polaris test will tell you, will they do well with just single modal therapy or, or you know, can we just do surgery on these patients or can we just do radiation or should we intensify this treatment? If these, patients, if these cancers are even more aggressive, where the or using single modal therapy will still put the patient at a risk down the line of, of developing or a higher risk of developing metastatic disease. So it can really break it down now into what's the best treatment and how intensive how intense this treatment should be. Um, so it's, it's it's a really big step because in the past it, again we went on the clinical or the pathologic features. And we really didn't know because you assume that everybody in the same risk category acts identically. We just know that's not true. I mean, you know, one prostate cancer may look horrible in the clinical and pathologic features, and it just does nothing. It just kind of fizzles forever. Whereas a patient that seems like they're going to be low risk will go on and metastasize and die. And, you know, I can't remember my daughter's name sometimes, but I remember the couple of patients that I had on active surveillance that I, before any of these tests were available and they did really well for years. And all of a sudden they came back one day and they were metastatic all over their body. And cause we just didn't have the tools to really differentiate people within a risk category and individualize or, you know, you know, do precision medicine. I know that's a kind of a cliche term these days, but we really can hone into the individual and how we can treat them based on their genetic and genomic profiles and not just trying to lump everybody together into the same category. Mm-hmm. So it's been, a, it's been a, a big change over the last 10 years or so in, uh, in urology and the treatment of prostate cancer. Yeah, no, that's great. Let's, let's stop there for any questions. I don't know if there's any in the, I didn't see the chat, but, um, does anyone Haven't have any questions any out there? in the chat yet? Nope. Yeah. Give people a second. That's, that's fine. If not, seemed like a good, good spot to pause for a minute. 
Um, okay. B BRCA2, um, you know, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, that really, you know, until this year, it hasn't been called out like, um, you know, we see here. Yep. Um, you know, you brought up the higher, um, you know, chance to have, um, you know, strong metastatic, you know, highly aggressive disease. Um, you think that's why it's now included? Yeah, I think there's just growing evidence about that. And, you know, other people have looked at that and there's a, a, a meeting that happens every other year. And it, it's, they call it the Philadelphia Consensus Conference because it's in Philadelphia and they try to reach a consensus. So I thought it's probably an appropriate name. Um, but they sit around and they talk about all the information. They get experts from all over the country uh, in both, you know, private practitioners that have a lot of, uh, you know, done a lot of work in uh, prostate cancer as well as academicians. And they're, they're presented with a lot of evidence. And at the end of the conference, uh, they look at this and they try to make a determinations based on the new studies and the new data that comes out of what's the best way to move forward. And sometimes they don't make any recommendations and sometimes they do. And at the last conference that we were able to go to, which occurred in December of nineteen or of twenty nineteen, which kind of was the gateway to you know the pandemic, um, that was the last time we had a meeting. And their recommendation at that point from this conference was that patients with uh, BRCA two mutation really should be made aware of the possibility of progression, a rapid progression of the disease. Um, if they're considered for active surveillance. And, and they actually went one step a little further and they said, if they have a BRAC2 mutation, probably should not be on active surveillance. Mm -hmm. They also mentioned that, you know, consider it for uh, BRCA1 and ATM mutations as well. Um, so that's been, and then more and more as between then and now, uh, more studies have come out to kind of show that. And a lot of the experts, especially the guys that uh, talk about active surveillance, um, you know, really have gone as far as saying they would not put their own patients that had a BRCA2 mutation on active surveillance. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's part yeah. Of so it's a, it's important to point out that this is not treat treatment related, uh, like with PARP inhibitors. That this is really you know for that upfront risk stratification as noted at the top of the table. So right, yeah. Wow. So this is you know yeah. I'm sorry. This, yeah, this doesn't come out only for your metastatic high risk patients. This is for your every patient with prostate mm -hmm. cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, what do you think then, in, you know, from the last statement you just said, um, you know, we have the um, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer NCCN guidelines, you know, kind of still insinuating more of a high risk uh, prostate um, uh, individual needs evaluation or, you know, if there's family history. I mean, how do you think these guidelines are going to change the field now? Because, um, I mean, it looks like you really want to know BRCA2 status now and everyone. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I, I think it's an important thing to know. I mean, you know, one of the important things when I talk to doctors about this is, you know, what's the, you know, what is the yield? What are you going to find? What's your expectation when you, when you look at these guys? Um, and from previous studies, we know that the overall incidence of, um, you know, mutations and say in general in prostate cancer is about 17%, maybe a little higher. These tend to be higher and they find them more in the more aggressive cancers and the metastatic cancers. And as you get less aggressive or lower risk and less of a family you know, history, those numbers go down. So I and think you're saying important. like mutations in general across all kinds of genes based on across all of the, the yeah. studies. Yeah. 
Yeah, across all of us. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, where BRCA2 is the most common. Um, others are in that category as well, yeah. like, uh, you know, ATM and Check2 and, and Rob can keep me honest and he could probably name the list in order, which I'll fetch him on you guys. Well, I remember, yeah, Colin Pritchard's paper was kind of that big first initial jump into this. And that was still a uh, metastatic prostate, if I remember. I that thought was it was metastatic like around 11% patient. from- Yeah, that was about, yeah, that was a little, yeah, a little higher. It was a little bit 12% or so. And then yeah. there was a paper that came out from- uh, I, I believe it was um, Nicolosi, Bravo. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. That's so I correct. Yep. And um, and that they determined it was you know across all risk categories it was seven about seventeen percent. So about one in six mm -hmm. patients. Yeah. And but you know when you're looking at the guys that are low risk, that number is going to be much lower. The lower risk guys, especially without a family history, is going to be lower. So it's important when you talk to doctors about this is we set those reasonable expectations is, you know, where is that point where you're going to say, gee, it's not worth ordering it. Um, and where is the point where you say, I've got to order this. And, you know, you, you've obviously you're going to have with, you know, depending on your, your pedigree, you're going to have a, a higher risk if you have a, a pretty strong family history, whether it's uh, prostate cancer or you know, associated the HBOC types. Um, and uh, so we talked to them about that and, you know, even if it's a low percentage, single digit percentages, when we look at the, the other guidelines in prostate cancer, recommendations are made based on uh, numbers as low as one or 2%. Um, and a good example of this is when they're suggesting to do a lymph node dissection at the time of a, a prostatectomy. They said, if your, your predicted risk of a positive node finding is 2% or higher, you should go ahead and do um, a node dissection, which adds time uh, more and morbidity definitely to the operation where your yield could be 2% or even less. So mm -hmm. I kind of liken some of this stuff to that is, you know, the guys are ready to jump and we'll do the extra surgery for 2%, but in order to save somebody, you know, from a tragic ending, um, you know, 2% is that where their threshold is. And I think that's an important thing. At least they can talk to their patients and have that shared decision-making, whether they, you know, even though the yield may be low, is what is the, the threshold of a, of a doctor and a, and a patient in conversation uh, to get the test done to look for something like this? Yeah. So, yeah. Dr. Cohen um, or Rob, I have a question. Um, so we're talking about predominantly BRCA2 here, but, um, you know, there's some literature about prostate cancer and Lynch syndrome. So I'm curious of you know, if that's an area that you feel NCCN or others in the Philadelphia consensus group might start looking at a little more closely, um, given that association. Rob, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I've heard myself talk a lot. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that there's a clear understanding that prostate cancer can be involved with Lynch syndrome. It in and of itself is not a single indicator for Lynch testing, but I feel like with this iteration of the guidelines, they specifically said that multi-gene panel testing is, a, is important in prostate cancer, and they went ahead and they listed the mismatch repair genes. So yes, that's definitely on the radar. It's just not a single indication for Lynch syndrome testing in the, in the Lynch syndrome guidelines yet. Yeah, like in the Philadelphia consensus, I just yanked that because I... I, I remember Lynch was in there in some way, shape, or form, and 
-hmm. they talk about it more in the context of metastatic that um, it could be related to uh, microsatellite instability and mm -hmm. you know treatment uh, related uh, benefit um, you know with uh, checkpoint inhibitors and things. Right. Yeah. That's that's the big thing is. Um... At, at what point do you, you know, you look for that? And you know, there's also the thought of, and I've talked to some uh, radiation oncologists about this, is if they had somebody with Lynch syndrome, you know, they obviously have a much increased risk of colorectal cancer. You know, would you be inclined to radiate a guy, you know, radiate the prostate that sits precariously close to the rectum um, if they had a Lynch? And, you know, there's, it's, there aren't any studies that looking at that, whether they have a higher incidence, if you radiate a man with prostate cancer with Lynch syndrome, if they have higher incidence, even increased incidence of, of rectal cancers, because they have such a high incidence anyway of developing rectal cancer. So it's hard, it'd be hard to determine that. You'd have to have such a huge study. And there just aren't that many men that have been detected with Lynch at, at this point, since you know, really genetic testing in men has not been around as long as it has been in women for breast cancer. Yeah, at least, at least, it. like, yeah, on the promoted side, like, it has been in breast cancer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, like, you know, hereditary female breast cancer in the beginning, no ovarian cancer. And, you know, they do talk about it, you know, yeah, making sure you take a good family history and, the, and consider Lynch there, um, you know, in the Philadelphia guidelines. The radiation is, in, that is an interesting question. I mean, you know, and I, I think about, um, you know, we have data, at least in some of the other genes um, for, you know, uh, mastectomy purposes and uh, treatment of lumpectomy with radiation for breast cancer. And the verdicts, uh, yeah, it's still still out even on like radio um, sensitive genes like ATM. I mean, that's one that's been looked at a lot uh, in particular. And I've honestly, off the top of my head, I cannot think of anything. I'm sure there's something out there, but uh, I haven't come across anything, yeah, recommending against radiation or concerns. And at least, you know, I've had some pretty good in-depth discussions over the years with people like experts and, and um, some of the thought is, you know, maybe radiation isn't a, a bad thing for cancer promotion because, I mean, it, it is and it's not. I mean, it, you know, it, it clearly is like Lee-Fermini syndrome. Yeah, it's not great. But then you think about irradiating uh, focal tissue, you know, maybe if you're a little more radiosensitive, you actually cause more cell death and you don't set yourself up for cancer. So I think we got to, I, I think we still have a lot to learn. Um, you know, from the different gene pathways, what radiation could potentially do. So, but they are yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, and I agree. And I think the thing we haven't even talked about yet, and you know, is is the use of, um, you know, genetic testing in, in men to qualify for the PARP inhibitors. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really kind of what sparked it all on um, was that was you know testing and finding out you know the mutations that make men eligible for the PARP inhibitors. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we've talked to this point about uh, localized prostate cancer and, and how we can use genomics and genetics, you know, to help guide treatment uh, early on or, or initial treatment. But this also, you know, the testing will help guide um, the appropriate testing for mm -hmm. later on. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of moves to right now, PARP inhibitors are indicated for, you know, failure on, you know, pretty much, but what we're talking about, probably fourth line or fifth line therapy. Um, and then and potentially then even after chemotherapy, which is considered sixth line therapy and the PARP inhibitor might be seventh line. I think a lot of people, you know, being treated set with six different times for the same cancer mm -hmm. at that point are kind of at the end uh, of, of what they'll tolerate. But uh, 
but there's a ton of studies going on about uh, or with the PARP inhibitors much earlier in treatment, uh, even as adjuvant treatment to, to yeah. initial therapies. So well, and I would think, yeah, if we start doing more testing for germline, I mean, and, and people are out there finding, you know, BRCA2 carriers, for instance, um, yeah, I would think they'd have a lower threshold to go, you know, potentially off label or something, you know, earlier in the journey, you know, once if that person's, um, you know, needing chemotherapy. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. I, a question um, on that on that chart that you were showing, um, yeah, and we didn't, we didn't really actually, you and I didn't get to debrief on this ahead of time. I mean, Rob uh, showed uh, some of this about a week ago or so uh, to some of us on in the oncology space. Um, but one thing that jumps out to me is they added that prognostic and predictive um, column. Um, I don't know if you want to pull it yeah, back up, but I can pull it back um, up yep. just so we can orient everybody. Because I, I think it's interesting that they added a column that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the benefit of the column is a bit confusing. I mean, um, I mean, maybe I guess it makes it clear, but I think even, even those two words get a bit muddy, you know, yeah, and it, yeah, go ahead. if you, if you ask, um, <laughs> you ask a, uh, any kind of a provider, what the difference between, or what's the definition of predictive versus the definition of prognostic and it gets it does get very very fuzzy mm -hmm. and what i try to describe is if you know it's something is predictive if you're looking at and, and you know tj please you know or or, or shelly or anybody please tell me if i'm wrong because i am according to my family more than half the time um that Predictive is dependent on a specific treatment, is that you can tell the outcome of a after a specific treatment, whereas prognostic is determining an outcome with no specific treatment, uh, nothing you know, uh, that you're talking about. So it could be across all treatments. And uh, so that's the, you know, the mm -hmm. biggest difference between the two of them. So in other words, you know, are any of these things... Um, you know, we'll take the gene expression tests. Are, are any of these going to tell you uh, if you'll do better after surgery than you would after radiation? Or specifically, if you just had radiation patients, are you going to do better um, or have better outcomes or less chance of uh, deleterious outcomes or, or bad outcomes? Mm -hmm. um, so whereas when you look at them as a whole, they say, well, it doesn't matter how you treat this patient. If they have the findings on a biomarker, you're going to have a bad outcome. So regardless of your treatment, yeah. specific treatment type. So I think that's, to me, the biggest difference. As you can see in the predictive column, everything's a big no. And which really talks to the point more, as, more of, there's no one specific treatment in prostate cancer, then anybody can say this treatment is better than that treatment. Is that all the findings have been over the years uh, since the dawn of time that you know surgical patients and radiation patients pretty much have the same curative uh, possibilities regardless of treatment type. So we can't at this point we don't have the ability to say this patient is better off having surgery compared to that you know you know that other patient. Uh, of course, other, other variables may come into play. If a patient's had 10 abdominal surgeries, they may not be a great candidate for, you know, a surgical removal uh, just from that, from a technical standpoint. 
um, or if they've already had radiation treatment for you know a pelvic cancer, they may not be able to get more radiation. So that's a different mm -hmm. scenario, but but that's what those are saying. So yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I see Shelly put in the chat. Uh, I don't know if you wrote that because it says whilst, but. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't see it. I, we I, speak I, that way, TJ. You know that. <laughs> no, I yeah. went to Doctor Google. Yeah, it, and it, and it's here's my thoughts on it. I mean, I think I think we're yeah. The treatment comes in big time in the predictive, but I think the reason I see it as really muddy is, uh, you know, I've I've had this conversation with our uh, one of our head statisticians too, um, Sasha, uh, Sasha, and. Um, uh, Sasha Guten Alexander for some, <laughs> but, you know, he, he kind of makes it simple. You know, if, if it's prognostic, it should be predictive is kind of his thought. And it, it's interesting. I, and I guess the way in my, you know, brain, I, I kind of compartmentalize what I think some of the, uh, you know, maybe the NCCN leadership is referencing here is yeah. Prognostic, you know, like, like you said, Shelly, I mean, it really is, uh, you know, Anton, you know, looking at outcome, you know, can it, you know, prognosticate outcome, uh, like, Met, Mets or whatever. Predictive. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, in the statistical world, I mean, I, I think of it more as, uh, you know, when something goes up, is it interacting with some other out, outcome, uh, like a treatment? And so, you know, if you think about, like, uh, you know, if we took Prolaris, for uh, instance, I mean, you kind of have a cutoff, like, uh, you know, this is lo low risk, uh, this is, you know, high risk. Well, if you started going down the higher, you know, the, the worse, you know, scores, would that be predictive of worse outcome? Like would, would the, the worst score over here, like if it's way out over here, would, the, would those people have a much more horrible outcome than people that were just a little bit in the high risk category? That's kind of how I think about uh, predictive. But again, I think it's, I think it's kind of muddy. And then you know, then there's confusing things uh, like in that uh, chart on the column, uh, you know, predictive too, because to me, you know, if we're talking about therapeutic, uh, you know, like BRCA2, I don't know why that wouldn't necessarily be predictive because, um, you know, people are doing better with PARP inhibitors and they have BRCA2 mutations. I mean, I know it's not predictive for surveillance per se, but um, yeah, you, you, it, would be predictive in a sense for, for treatment to an extent, I would think. So yeah, I, yeah it's, it's a little I, muddy and it's confusing. And I was just wondering why they even put that in there. It just seemed odd to me. I know but. it's it's very new, but I, I think that part of it is when you talk to people about, you know, potential studies and studies for, for all of these different, you know, predictors or tools, um, the important, you know, I've always thought, and again, I'm not a statistician and I'm very far from it, but in order to get a, a very good predictive outcome or to, to be a predictive uh, study, it really should be a randomized clinical or randomized trial and mm -hmm. pro, um, prospective. Uh, whereas in the prognostic space, not so much so is, you know, because of what you're looking for. Um, you know, we're looking for overall outcomes as opposed to, you know, predicting, you know, how patients are going to do um, based on the treatment. So I, I think that the predictive column will require um, a pretty extensive RCTs to be done and to hit, mm -hmm. hit the yes in that column. 
And unfortunately, yeah, yeah. or fortunately or unfortunately with prostate cancer, you know, the outcomes could be 20 years down the road, especially for lower mm -hmm. risk disease and, you know, have enough events to have um, power and to have st clinical or statistical significance. You're talking tens of thousands of patients in a study probably where it's going to be and waiting 20 years, you know, to get the outcomes for it. So it's just mm -hmm. tough to do. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And thanks for uh, sharing that paper, Shelly. Um, uh, Shelly put a paper in the chat about prognostic versus predictive. Um, oh. We can pause here for, for questions. Any? We, went, we don't went have anything there. in the chat currently. Okay. Nothing that's been sent directly to me. Yeah. So Todd, I mean, and Rob, I mean, what do you see um, on the horizon? Um, you know, any, anything on your radar that's, uh, you know, going to be really kind of coming into routine prostate care, um, you know, on the genomic side or the genetic side? I mean, I think so. I think that the more and more data we have on Prolaris and other, you know, RNA expression, um, I think that's going to be helpful in determining, you know, best treatments. Um, I also think that we're going to move a little bit more into, uh, you know, the somatic testing for prostate and identifying uh, genes or gene combinations that will make one a better candidate for one treatment for another versus another. Now, I, I don't think there's going to be, there's a gene we're going to discover that makes a patient a good surgical candidate. But I think it would be something more on the lines of, you know, you're alluding to with ATM, they may be more radiosensitive if they have an ATM mutation or something. So there'll be, you know, if you're weighing the option between one or the other, you may move based on their genetic profile to one of those ablative treatments rather than a, you know, excisional treatment. Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll get to that point. And I think a lot of it will go liquid. Um, as opposed to tissue-based in the future. Mm -hmm. um, it's just easier to get. Um, and, you know, depending on how the technology goes, you don't need, you know, as much of the circulating, um, you know, tumor cells or, or free cell-free DNA, you know, to look at and to be able to analyze. Uh, on the flip side of that is the problem with prostate cancer is it's slowly growing. It's less likely to shed. So you may not find it, but you may find... Um, you know, new biomarkers or liquid biomarkers in the urine. And there's mm -hmm. plenty of, there's plenty of studies that look at urinary biomarkers. Um, and we're getting, you know, there's, there's more and more data coming out on, on those all the time, just like everything else. Um, so I think- we'll, Yeah, we'll and do, do you think that'll take the place of even biopsies to some extent? You're gonna have to move the needle um, and, you know, the, in anything in statistics that I'm comfortable with is, is the concept of negative predictive value. And until you can prove to a uh, urologist, and we're, as a, as a group, we're pretty pigheaded, until you can prove that a negative predictive value is, is so good that you don't have to have tissue in your hand to look at to say that, uh, you know, you don't have cancer. I think mm -hmm. we're all we're going to be doing biopsies for quite a while. Uh, I think the, you know, I, I've been looking at newer technology about biopsying and better ways to identify suspicious areas in the prostate. You know, MRI has certainly made a difference in in diagnostics of prostate cancer, and I think there's other there's other technologies that are that are coming down the pike 
Um, I saw one the other day with um, spectroscopic, real-time spectroscopic analysis while you're biopsying. And, uh, you know, a mm. little, little probe at the end of a biopsy needle that goes in and measures the, you know, different factors that they're looking at, um, you know, while you're biopsying. And it was really neat as the, the needle advances a millimeter at a time until you, until it, the sirens go off and say, this is suspicious. <laughs> it's, it's much, you know, it's, it's very yeah. interesting, even in, even in MRI negative areas, it's, it's really kind of neat. So I think things like that will help yeah. with our detection. Um, and uh, better ways there's going to be, you know, that the infamous AI stuff that's coming around, uh, looking at um, the, a new field that's emerging in prostate is you know, histiomics, where you're looking at um, the pathology uh, using digital pathology and uh, AI looking at this to determine subtle differences in, in, at the cellular or even intracellular levels um, in the cancer to, you know, that may correlate with aggressiveness. So there's, mm -hmm. that, there's that whole field that's burgeoning as well. So yeah, we've got a lot of neat stuff. Um, you know, we're not just, <laughs> as, I, as I told people just the other day, a group I was talking to, it's, uh, you know, we're not just doing, you know, prostate exams, torturing people with cystoscopies and doing vasectomies anymore. We got a lot of neat stuff that the urologists are, are doing. You know, we have our, our specific little torture devices that anybody that's been to a urologist, worse than going to the dentist. Um, but, uh, you know, the new tech that we're going to have in, in the next, you know, I don't even know how long it's moving so quickly, is really going to help us with, with diagnostic and, you know, prognostic and, and treatment. Yeah, that's incredible. How many people, I mean, of those that are, get biopsies, um, you know, that are negative, you know, if, if you have an elevated PSA or something that prompts a biopsy, um, you know, I'm assuming there's some percent that are negative that end up turning into prostate cancer down the road. Do you just keep rebiopsying? I mean, if the PSA just stays up. Yeah, there are, there are some biomarkers that are available that help us determine, uh, you know, if you have a negative biopsy, who's, you know, you, have, you still have a clinical suspicion that they have prostate, they're harboring something in there, you just missed it. Um, then, yeah, MRI is helpful. Those guys didn't get one you know, before the initial biopsy, mm -hmm. you can help locate tumors. And uh, there are, there's a series of uh, biomarkers that are out there, whether they're blood-based or um, urine-based, that help determine if, uh, you, know, this is, you know, how suspicious are we? What is the likelihood of finding you know, and everybody, you know, nobody wants to find the indolent sitting there doing nothing mm -hmm. prostate cancer because then you're, you're, you're kind of torn of what to do. You know, we want to find the clinically significant, the guys that are going to you know, potentially go on. And there are, yeah. you know, several tests that do that. Um, those will get better. Uh, again, it, it's a negative predictive value. How confident are mm -hmm. you if you get a blood test that it's telling you, well, we don't think you're going to find anything that you really don't find anything. And so it's, it, you know, you have to be, you know, Where's your, you know, your, your comfort level on, on using those? Yeah. Um, so those are, some of those are available. Those are getting better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there'll be, there'll be more and more in the, on the genetic side about, you know, you know, I can't say you're ever going to do a, a prophylactic prostatectomy or prophylactic uh, radiation, because even with, you know, genetic information, the penetrance is not nearly like it is in breast cancer. Um, yeah, and I don't even know if it's really well known. I've you know come across this a few times, and I even 
you know, this, this comes up in clinic. I mean, if you have a man that tests positive for a BRCA2 mutation, I mean, others can chime in, but I can't think of really a good absolute risk uh, you can give that man for prostate cancer right now. I mean, if it's 30%, 50%, I mean, the, the average man has about a, what, 15% risk to get prostate it's about 11. Yeah. Yeah. The guy, every guy, well, it depends. It's, it's age related too. I always told my patients, you know, it kind of goes up whether you have cancer, you know, just uh, autopsy studies, it's about 10% a year starting at 50. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you hit a hundred, you know, you're going to, you'll have probably have prostate. We're going to find prostate cancer. If you get hit by a bus when you're on your hundredth birthday and they take out your prostate, you probably have prostate cancer. And my answer is that, yeah, so what, you know, what are you going to yeah. do to that guy? And um, so it's, but it, it really is very high. And there's, there's a point where if you haven't found it, you know, you got to stop looking for it because they're not mm-hmm. going to die from it. You know, somebody has a 20 year life expectancy or prostate specific life expectancy and they're, they're 80 years old. You kind of don't want to find it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but, so it's different than a lot of others. Yeah. But I, you know, I've seen guys in their eighties that come in with PSAs of, 150 and you're you know you're sitting there going okay he's 80 he's in otherwise pretty good health actuarial tables tell me he's going to live i don't know eight or ten years do i go looking for it and you know we can help prevent all the morbidities associated with an untreated prostate cancer down the line uh, especially Mm -hmm. aggressive ones so you know those are those are kind of the dilemmas it's it's nice to have it would be nice to have a non-invasive way to say this guy yeah, he may have prostate cancer, but it's never going to cause him a problem. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah. would be a nice, nice to be able to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you, do you see the question. field? Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, go I was ahead. just going to, okay. I was going to ask, um, you know, with the BRCA2 and the urologists who aren't as embedded in the genetics world, how has that conversation gone and how receptive have they been to diving into an area that probably wasn't part of their training, but now can be an instrumental part of their uh, treatment planning. Yeah. Um, and, and third part of that question is, um, are there anything that, in, any aspects for those of us on this call that we could do to help um, elevate that education, assuming that's a need? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I mean, I, I think Rob and I will both agree the adoption of genetic testing by urologists, you know, kind of as an overall is really poor. It's probably less than 5% at this point, which is a tremendously bad number. Um, Are you saying, sorry, let me just, so that's genetic, that's hereditary or is that also hereditary testing. of the genomic? Okay. No, I'd say overall hereditary, hereditary, you know, testing. What do you think the tumor, the tumor penetrance is right now? It's really only about 20 to 25 percent. Yeah, so I think that's that, still not very high. Yeah. It's still not very good. And, you know, some, yeah. you know, but then you also look at your, your target audience. Um, the average urologist, at least in the United States, is, is 58 years old. And, Michelle, you're, you're spot on. Not only was genetics not really part of their training, but the only genetics we got were if you mix two pea pods together, which one you'll have a tall pea pod and a short pea pod and, you know, the Mendelian thing. And, um, you know, that's about as far as they get. So bringing this up and explaining to the mutations and, you know, 
DNA repair, you know, mismatch repair genes and, and you know, all these other things, they, they, they get glazed over and they're like, well, I've been doing just fine for the last 25, 30 years. And my patients are, you know, I don't have any patients that recur. I have no patients that die. And all my patients that I operate on it are continent and potent. And, you know, it, it's like, okay, well, you're the one guy then that's like that because the rest of us are human and we don't have that, that luxury. Um, but the education is, is it, it's ramping up because people are now seeing this in, in, the lay, in the literature. You know, we're getting it in the Journal of Urology. It's no longer in, you know, you know all these more esoteric, um, you know, journals where, you know, urologists don't tend to play in that space. They, they play in, you know, the specific for urology and, you can't pick up a urology journal these days. It doesn't have several articles on genomics or genetics in, you know, in it. So they're, they're getting kind of hit with it. Uh, they're hesitant because it's something new. And, uh, you know, old guys don't, I'm one of them. I'm 58 years old. So I'm your, I'm the ideal urologist or the average urologist is me. And, you know, I don't like anything new either. Um, but, uh, you know, this is something you, they're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, I always compare it and, and, you know, one of the things that urologists don't like is they don't like being compared to gynecologists. And when we sit there and say, well, you know, the gynecologist adopted this, you know, 25, 30 years ago and look at, look at you. And they're like, oh, you know, and I said, so you're, you're way behind gynecology. And that kind of sets them off a little bit because you know, we're competitive by nature. Um, they were surgeons, you know, we do <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, any last minute questions? Any there? If not, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap TJ, up. I so, do have a question. Oh, sure. It's very quick. And it has to do with Hi, the, the future and the evolution of testing. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Cohen, if there's any refinement or any plan to add other genes to the Prolaris test as we typically do for panel testing or for tumor testing? Um, or is yeah. this it for Prolaris? Um, well, we, we did look at, you know, some other, you know, well, you know, specifically what this test is, is looking at this, the uh, cell cycle proliferation genes. And, you know, the original look was at 128. Um, the reason why they settled originally, you know, well before my time, um, is uh, because they didn't. They found that adding more didn't change the profile, so it came down to these thir- these specific thirty-one. Now we have looked in, at other genes to add that are not necessarily cell cycle proliferation, um, but we'll, it, and they may affect it slightly, but not that much. Uh, in order to change the whole test and have to go through all sorts of you know, potential, uh, you know, regulatory things and studies to vet for validation. But the one thing that we can say is that if you look at other genes and, and you know, some of the other, other tests use different profiles or, or different uh, types of genes. Um, but when you're looking at things like, let's say, antigen receptor, which is, you know, one of the big questions is why don't we have an antigen receptor gene, you know, or expression assay is part of Prolaris. Well, it's because what does the antigen receptor do? Well, the antigen receptor gets the, the testosterone or the antigen, and it, it's carried into the, uh, the nucleus. And as it goes, when the testosterone goes through um, the, uh, the mem- cell membrane, it gets carried into the nucleus and helps stimulate the cell cycle proliferation. So the end effect is CCP, although the cause may be androgen, 
we're still measuring the end effect because what drives mitosis is the cell cycle proliferation genes. So I know it's kind of a long convoluted answer to pretty simple question, um, but that's kind of reason why we settled in this and why we look at adding these other things and they really haven't changed the profile at all. So, you know, for now, no, we're not, you know, we're, we're looking at certain things, but uh, we wanted to make a significant improvement before we would change the, uh, the commercial assay. Sure. So, so no updates unless we learn something uh, completely new about the cell cycle progression or anything like that. Yeah. Well, no, okay. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say there's none. I'm saying we're <laughs> we are. Are we looking? Yeah. I, I. 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 You know, it's one of those. I. I wish I could tell you, but I can't. So, <laughs> but there, there are, are things in the world. Yeah. Where are you located, uh, Dr. Cohen? I am in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte. Okay. Yeah. That's where we all, yeah, it's, we all down in Charlotte in the South this time of year, we all glow. We have this specific, <laughs> that's how you can figure out where we're living. You don't get that in New York where, where Rob is, or, or certainly not out in uh, Utah. Um, definitely don't yeah. get this kind of a glow. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, well, great. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it's good to end uh, start and end on the glow. Yep. <laughs> so we can title this uh, for uh, the podcast glow. Um, so thank you, Todd. Thank you, Rob. Uh, also, thank you, Shelly, for running the chat. And uh, yeah, I hope to see everybody on October 19th talking about male breast cancer. That should be, that should be a good one. We'll, we'll yeah. stick with the, the male theme, at least for two in a row. So have a good rest of your day, everyone. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. Thank you.